Hello and welcome to episode 8 of the Doctor Who Missing Episodes podcast. This episode we will be looking at the epic 12-parter, the Daleks Master Plan. It's so epic, we're splitting DMP into two parts. So what you can expect in this episode is a deep dive into the background of the story, the story itself and we'll give an opinion or two about it and then next episode what we're going to do is cover the missing episodes aspects but if you're here for the missing episodes stuff please don't be discouraged because Paul and I met with our guest late last year and we were really blown away by the amount of original research and insights and we had a whale of a time and we hope you do too Our guest this episode is Gavin Rymill. Hello, Gav. Hello. Would you be embarrassed if I read out who you are and what you do? <laughs> no, I think it would uh, help legitimise my Good. appearance after your series of uh, well-known guests. <laughs> Gav is an illustrator and graphic designer. He's done covers for various Doctor Who magazines. He's written a few features. He's also worked on the Doctor Who DVD files. He's contributed to TARDIS Type 40 Manual, the Dalek Handbook, Vorp Vorp, the Celestial Toy Room. If that isn't enough, he did background elements for those brilliant... Paul, do you remember those series... Do you remember in Series 7 when they did those brilliant movie-style posters? Yes, I like them. Yeah, they were terrific, weren't they? Gav did background elements for those. That was Gav. Yeah, that was partly Gav. Gav. That was Gav. It was mainly Lee Binding, but I'll I'll take uh, take some of his limelight. Can we have Lee instead? Then? <laughs> uh, he's done all sorts of image work for the DVD range. He's provided tons of model sculpts for the Doctor Who figurine collection. He's also responsible for the 3D TARDIS model stuff on the Blu-ray sets. Mm-hmm. Gav is also one half of the Dalek prop history team, Dalek 6388, and he's responsible for those prolific YouTube series terry nation army he sounds like a very a multi-talented guy kind of renaissance man and yet it's all in dedic- in pursuit of one aim which is um the daleks and the videos are amazing thank you i wasn't expecting there to be so much original research in them so i'm i i thought you know they'd be slick and entertaining and pass half an hour here and there but i wasn't expecting to learn so much so um i hope you've got some more up your sleeve for tonight Yes, got quite a lot. I mean, it's mainly thanks to other people very kindly donating me bits and bobs to pour through. Uh, Richard Bignall has been one of the main pillars of a lot of the stuff that we've done because he just dumps shed loads of old paperwork on my doorstep and I, uh, I I go through it looking for the absolutely tiniest, most pointless details and squeezing out 20-minute video. I was party to a conversation the other day between Gav and his... Dalek 6388 partner John and I saw some of the research in action I I don't want to spoil their work but it basically involved John trawling through Google Maps and going to Street View to identify a street near 
somewhere where a Dalek was in a bit of film <laughs> in the mid-1960s. And he trawled through the streets of various dozen towns and it was just absolutely insane watching it. Yeah, John did an amazing thing there and I won't spoil too much about it because he might talk about it next time. But um, suffice to say, we had a puzzle that was absolutely impossible to crack because the information relied upon the captions for the photos all being correct. And when you lined all the photos up in date order, they just didn't make sense. Um, so we knew something was wrong. <laughs> but we'd been given these photos and this information, and there had to be a break in the logic somewhere, because we knew what we were seeing with our own eyes didn't make sense. So despite the uh, reliability of the people that were giving us this information the only way to, to crack some of these problems is is to challenge everything and question everything. And, and we've had a bit of stick in the past for being a little bit irreverent towards certain people or certain sources, because sometimes you just have to say, somebody's got to be wrong, so let's check everything. Um, and so that's what John did. He ended up checking the location of this photo by going through Google Street View and proved that it wasn't where we were told it was taken. And that solved the mystery because we knew something was wrong. We knew it couldn't be where it was supposed to be, but it was just persistence <laughs> of John trawling through villages looking for church spires. What you guys do on a video is ask a question that nobody ever thought to ask and then make you sort of hooks to the answer and then go through the, the, the clues and solve it. It's absolutely phenomenal work. I think part of the thing is that there's not many, there's not a great many questions left to be asked in Doctor Who because of uh, great work by people like Richard Bignall and Andrew Pixley and all, all of the uh, the big names. So there's there's not many stones left unturned. So we have to go for some very small and niche <laughs> mysteries that we declare are important and then we say that we've solved them and therefore we've achieved something. <laughs> <laughs> and I should say, John, who can't be with us this evening, is going to join us down the line, hopefully, for a, a Dalek special, a Dalek 6388 special. And although we're not going to get into it too deeply in this instalment, subject to this podcast, the reason we're here is missing episodes. What, what does that mean to you? That's a really good question. I was trying to think when I became aware that there was such a thing of missing episodes... Uh, Doctor Who magazine, when I was very young, used to... When I first started getting it in, I guess, the late 80s, it ran a page on the, the back inside cover that had a little profile of half a dozen stories, and those always listed whether episodes existed or not. And I think that was just part and parcel of, of coming to Doctor Who when I was about eight or nine and realising that it was just this incomplete thing. But it was also such a... Uh, a, a sprawling uh, universe and uh, hundreds and hundreds of episodes that stretched out impossibly before me, all the ones that I could see. So all the ones that were missing seemed largely, not unimportant, but um, given how much there was to see on yeah. the horizon, the fact that there were some black and white ones when you know, you're eight years old and that's not massively thrilling. Having said that, uh, the first stories I saw were black and white and, and um, that's what it's one of the things that captivated me. The first stories you saw were black and white? Yeah, I first saw the Crotons, uh, believe it or not. That's what got me into Doctor Who, so I won't hear a bad word said about it. My dad had a, a VHS copy from the uh, Five Faces of Doctor Who repeat. Good man. And, uh, 
and uh, I, I walked walked in on him with, in his watching his uh, embarrassing secret. <laughs> <laughs> and I s- said, "What's this?" And, and son, uh, it's time for you to <laughs> enter a larger world. Yeah. Um, so he sat me down and, and gave me the Doctor Who talk, and uh, oh. soon I was learning all of the names of the doctors and. Uh, the rest is history. So I actually got into Doctor Who while it was between Colin Baker and Sylvester McCoy. Mm. Uh, so the first Doctor Who I ever saw on broadcast was Time and the Rani. So Crotons followed by Time and the Rani got me solidly into Doctor Who and the rest is history. <laughs> I thought Time and the Rani was quite good when I was eight. At the time, it terrified me. The the tea traps absolutely terrified me. And getting back to missing episodes, the Dalek's Master Plan... What's your first memory of learning about the Daleks' master plan? Daleks' master plan, yeah, it was it was always spoken of, wasn't it, as the this sort of um, this this sort of untouchable epic, the the longest ever story. Although, you know, arguments over Trial of a Time Lord and things, but um, I, I must have got the novelization in. If it wasn't when it came out, it wasn't long after, and that left a lasting impression. And I have quite vivid memories of the book. What's interesting coming to the research later is finding how much of the book takes from Terry Nation's early draft, Ooh. not screen version. So there's uh, so uh, John Peel blended both versions of the script. So a lot of the stuff that I later discovered was um, was early draft stuff is is things that that echoed in my memory from from reading the book from a long time ago. But when the the early years VHS came out, that was a fairly life changing moment. Which was ninety two. I was I guess uh, twelve, just gone thirteen, and um, the Daleks, the early years. Yes. I just watched those over and over again, and um, and all of the early years tapes. I absolutely loved the fact they were orphaned episodes. Just gave these stories a, a mystique. I think the fact that Master Plan is quite episodic helps you pick bits in isolation sorry it's a bit tangential but i think one of the reasons the uh, the enemy of the world suffered in its reputation was because it's it's uh, it's part of such a broad storyline mm. and so it, you, you had no sense of the bigger story it just seemed like a really weird orphaned episode whereas master plan is so sort of compartmentalized mm. you can that 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 egyptian episode has a quite a definite ending it almost feels like so you you don't get quite such a sense of loss of um of continuity uh, yeah that was a really long r- rambling point sorry that's all right i'll edit it out <laughs> what we're gonna do is we'll review the story We'll cover the missing episodes aspect next time. Gav, as you're a man who finds great interest in many things, if at any point, you know, you feel that a scope of discussion isn't going to cover something you know, I'll I'll tell you what, I'll give you this random fact buzzer. It's so rotund. Which is Brian Kant's death scream. Give it a go. Thank you. It's beautiful. (laughs) and in the time-honored fashion we're going to discuss the background and we'll get into some production stuff we'll talk about the story we'll cover the characters and 
we'll each give our opinions about about the story. So Terry Nation had been commissioned to write his fourth Dalek story. And when this was discussed at the top levels of the BBC, literally on the top floor, Hugh Weldon, who was in a senior position at the time, uh, gave feedback from his mother-in-law, one L.G. Stroud, Mrs. L.G. Stroud, who he deemed to be the average viewer of Doctor Who, said, more Daleks. And so it was agreed that the six-part story would be beefed up to a 12-part story. It was the start of Dalek mania, and um, I think Hugh, Hugh Weldon's mother-in-law had a finger on the pulse I did a I did a small calculation between November sixty four and February sixty six. Thanks in part to her, twenty seven or fifty seven episodes of Doctor Who had the Daleks in. So you basically had a fifty fifty chance of <laughs> any point over over a beyond a twelve month period, uh, you turn the TV on and there was a Dalek episode on TV. So this was the this was the period that cemented the Daleks as basically the other component of Doctor Who. It was mm. the Doctor, the TARDIS and the Daleks. And and Hugh Weldon's mother-in-law is the person we have to thank for this. Thank you, Mrs. Stroud. And behind the scenes, one John Wiles, who sounds to me like perhaps not the easiest person to get on with, threatened to walk out over the doubling of the length of the Dalek serial. And he was talked down by Donald Tosh over a rich BBC lunch. I suppose it's because it, it interfered with his vision of what Doctor Who should be. It's been an ongoing theme, hasn't it, that we, we're trying to spot exactly what Wiles' vision for the programme is, because it takes a while to turn, you know, like the old cliche about turning round the uh, the oil tanker. But it takes a while for him to put his stamp on these stories one by one. Mm. And sometimes you have to look for little clues. And although I, I think some of the decisions they make in this story, some of the things that make it different from what you might expect from your run-of-the-mill, if there's already a formula, isn't there, for a Terranation six-part Dalek story, some of the things that make this stand out seem to me to come from John Wells' frustration with being lumbered with it, some of the choices he makes. Yeah. But we'll come on to that. Yeah. And uh, so they had the, the six-part story agreed that Terranation would write it. In researching this, I found out that the... Mission to the Unknown prequel was commissioned for the six-parter. So Nation already had seven episodes on his plate. And then they expanded by six episodes. And Verity Lambert said that there would need to be help. And she commissioned Dennis Spooner to help write the additional six episodes. Yeah, so there's this paperwork of, of her basically saying, this is impossible, Terry Nation couldn't possibly expand to 12 but we could solve this problem by bringing another writer on board. And she, she puts forward Dennis Spooner and then that gets approved. Okay. I think what's interesting, I've been looking at the paperwork. <laughs> yeah, he was initially asked about it in January and then and then officially commissioned in February. Now, I think that the uh, paper trail often is a formalization of things that have already happened or or mm. you know talk, talks are in the work conversations have happened and then and then people's names get put on contracts and things and there's an example of this down the line but if he was uh, working on mission to the unknown from february and then he was commissioned for the six parter of master plan in may i think it's reasonable to suppose that in in that period of time that he had uh, formulated the concept for what the six-part Dalek master plan would be. 
Uh-huh. I, I think that his original vision for Master Plan is 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 hiding in plain sight. If we refer to his earliest story outline, his earliest story outline that we have is 12 episodes long. But I think that critically, throughout all of Master Plan, all of its structure from, from first outline to screen, there's basically six episodes that are set in one time period. And then there's a further six episodes which aren't. And there's some overlap between episodes six and 12. But for argument's sake, you can take episodes one to six and then take episodes seven to 11 out or seven and most hmm. of 12 out and then just end it. So if we refer to back, back to that first outline, I could propose what the original six-part master plan was. Uh, and it featured the Guardian of the Solar System, or I think he was Galactic President originally, which was a man called Ban Hoong. In episode one, we meet the charming Ban Hoong. Brett meets Doctor Who. They steal the vital part of the uh, Dalek device. And the episode ends with Ban Hoong being revealed as a traitor. Episode two, they steal the yacht, it crash lands. Episode three is the penal colony. Interestingly, the Daleks arrive on the penal colony in episode three. So we would have had Daleks amongst the prisoners. Uh-huh. Episode four, they arrive in New Washington. They meet Brett's friend, Tom, who sends them off in a rocket. Tom gets killed. Episode five, they, the rocket lands on the planet of Mists which would later become Myra. They steal the Dalek ship. The the theft of the Dalek ship is a trap that is then piloted back to Varga, which later became Kemble. And I think at that point, episode six, we can assume the Daleks regain their vital part. The Doctor then activates it and the Daleks are wiped out and the story ends at episode six. And I think it's telling that through to the screen version, the TARDIS still departs Kemble at the end of episode six and you could insert a uh, an, an ending into that and and draw a line under it and at that point you're just spinning the wheels aren't you it doesn't exactly. matter if it, if there is one two three or another 15 episodes in the middle you could expand or contract it as long as they end up back on Kemble again I mean you know I hate to get ahead of myself and start reviewing it this early but for all that I love this story, it doesn't hide that very well, does it? It doesn't hide the fact that it's been inflated. You've taken a six-part story and crowbarred, I don't know, the Keys of Marinus into the middle of it. Mm. Or arguably the chase. Do you think the tone would still have been distinctly different from the chase from the beginning? Yes. I think the first, particularly the first four episodes of Master Plan are the, the, the core of the original mm. Master Plan. I think episode four particularly, The Traitors, I think that's... That's the tone uh, of the real original six-parter that we'd have got. And I think also as a as a, a jumping-off point for Terry Nation's spin-off series as well, I think. But it's also the darkest point in this story, isn't it, really? Quite early on, it, it sets the stakes. It tells you that this is there are more stakes, there's more uncertainty in this story than we usually get in Doctor Who. Is this just the mood Terry Nation was in, or is this... Tosh and Wiles telling him they want something a bit a bit more, inverted commas, grown up. I think Terry Nation's draft is darker than what ends up on screen. I think there's uh, elements in it, particularly with the sacrifice of the companion, whoever it turns out to be, and the prison planet. There's more, there's, there's nastier lines in there, and there's a more oppressive nature. And I think I think what's really interesting is that Nation was building this this universe he originally set it in the year one million and it was uh 
it was reconfigured to the year 4000. But I think Nation was constructing a really interesting world with the Space Security Service and Mavic Chen and the, the galactic politics and everything. And and all that is a, is a self-contained and interesting story. And then they have five episodes or six episodes to fill. So it suddenly lifted out and becomes something else. So what we have is a situation where we have the six-parter and Dennis Spooner is drafted in to expand to a 12-parter. And we have heard there are various fan myths and fan rumours that stories along the lines that Terry Nation would turn up and hand over what a, a half-length draft of an episode that Spooner or Tosh would have to expand on. Having heard last time that Tosh's recollections aren't necessarily accurate, is that a fair assessment of Terry Nation's contribution to the 12-parter? No. (laughs) I heard an interview, uh, Donald Tosh, he said that Terry Nation delivered an outline and he wrote all the dialogue for Dalek Masterplan. But we have Terry Nation's drafts. Right. And Terry Nation wrote full drafts. And there are... I mean, in some cases, wholesale changes, but part of that was through necessity because because of a situation with a with a fluctuating companion, for one thing, as they were trying to work out who would be the next long-term companion. But, I mean, I did a, a, a moderately detailed breakdown of episodes one and two. I would say, at most, they were underwritten by maybe five minutes. Right. I mean... There is some directorial sleight of hand, shall we say. I think Douglas Camfield ensures they run as long as possible. Hmm. I mean, episode two is easiest to analyse simply because we have the visuals. So we can determine how much is uh, visually redundant or not, and it's harder in other episodes. Yeah. But in episode two, for example, there are two shots where it takes Trantis 30 seconds to cross the room. There's a 30-second shot of the delegates clapping. But Terry Nation specifies these moments in his script. He says he talks about introductory shots. He talks about uh, certain things. So uh, ignoring the pace at which it's shot, I would say five minutes short at most for the for the couple of right. episodes that I, I looked at in detail. Right. For as many scenes as there's things uh, added to, there's things taken away. There's a whole sequence in episode two where Terry Nation writes the characters. There's extra scenes of them approaching the Dalek city and they're just gone from the camera script and they're swapped around and it's replaced with other things. But that's all just, you know, that's just structural work of, of moving moving the jigsaw puzzle pieces around. So fundamentally the idea that Terry Nation turned up at Donald Tosh's house on the way to the airport handed in the back of an envelope with half a dozen lines written on it and cleared off. This is not in, with any base in fact. Yeah. Can I just repeat what Toby said last time for anyone who missed it? He put it rather, pl- rather bluntly if everyone involved in a production was dead and Donald Tosh could claim that he had done something, he would say he'd done it. So... He, he, of course, he's only saying that because Donald Tosh is dead. <laughs> Hello, 
It was directed by the brilliant Douglas Canfield, and Douglas did all 12, which left him exhausted, and he needed a good long break after this. Um, I think for my money, the clip we have from episode one and the whole of episode two are some of his finest work in Doctor Who. And in terms of Dalek stories, I mean, what we can see from this one is certainly a tonic after the chase. What are you saying? This is like a leading question. (laughs) I'm not going to say... I haven't got a bad word to say about Richard Martin. I love the chase, but I love it like like a true crime video. And I just can't (laughs) take my eyes off the horror of all of the terrible, terrible things that should never have been allowed to happen. It's, 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 I mean, it's, it's fascinating. It's fascinating as a piece of television. It's not necessarily a great piece of television. It, it has so much potential, but watching Masterplan, you realise what could have been. One of the, one of the challenges that, that Camfield faced with this was the, the sheer scale of the production. And they had to book an extra week to to film it, and they spent I think I think an extra week in Ealing or wherever they did the film stuff. And there is a list as long as my arm of the stuff that they filmed on thirty five millimeter in advance, various effect shots, model shots, jungle scenes, and so on. The Daleks very ineffectively trying to burn down a forest. It must have taken them decades. But it was a very complex production, technically. Ring my special buzzer. <laughs> so one of the first bits of uh, pre-filming done was the death of Katerina on, uh, filmed on a trampoline. The trampoline was hired from Nissan's trampoline company. <laughs> um, apparently... Douglas Camfield was, the story goes, Douglas, Douglas Camfield was on the tube uh, and started randomly talking to this chap on the tube who turned out to be a gymnast. This is the story. <laughs> the, the gymnast called Bob Walker, who ultimately ended up saying, oh, I could do your uh, death scenes for you. And so... <laughs> what? Uh, <laughs> well, this is the this is the story. Is that Doug, Doug, Doug Camfield met a guy on a tube who ended up doing the uh, the trampoline death. Either an extremely long tube journey, or he got straight mm. to the point. <laughs> I mean, the fact that he, anyone speaking to anyone on the tube makes me suspicious. This is a true story. They got this gymnast called Bob Walker in, and he uh, led Adrian Hill through the process of doing these jumps and things, and they shot it with a high speed camera. She recalls uh, that the camera angle was down low and she did as high a jumps as she could and they shot it with a high-speed camera. We don't know how high, how, what the frame rate was, but we know that the uh, molecular dissemination sequence was done in a similar way in the mm. s- same session. And that's not a very high-speed camera and that looks relatively like people bobbing up and down on a trampoline. So it makes you wonder just how effective or how high speed the uh, slow motion was to try to capture these people floating in space. And I wondered whether uh, the shots on the trampoline for Katerina and Kirkson? Correct, yeah. Whether they were just the shots of them going out the airlock, perhaps. The camera down low, and they got one take of them going sort of floor to ceiling as high as they could manage, and that was just them ejecting into space. Or or whether there's uh, sequences of, I mean, Adrian Hill talks about tumbling 
and uh, trying to do somersaults and all this stuff. It would be an absolutely fascinating sequence to see. They, they shot it in front of a back-projected image of a, a lunar photo from the Atlas of the Moon by Vincent de Calate. So we can see th there's a couple of pictures that we're fairly sure what moon photo they were using. If you could, if you could get a slightly better idea of what uh, shots were done of Katerina, you could, you could really closely recreate that. I've often wondered how one would act as a cadaver on a trampoline. But so, mm. what you're saying, you, in, your informed speculation makes a great deal of sense. Yeah, what a shame. What a shame that bit of film didn't survive, rather than the smoke overlay. From the <laughs> <laughs> oh well, luck of the draw. While we're talking about the production element and Camfield's attempt to tackle this mammoth story, there is a series of notes from mainly the design department uh -huh. uh, bitching about Camfield. Oh, really? <laughs> the end of August, which was a month before this pre-filming with the trampoline, uh, assistant design manager Harry Smith wrote to Wiles, said he had no information for the pre-filming and he should have had it. Uh, it was a week late. And as a consequence, that the design department may refuse to build things and or what they build might be substandard because they just didn't have the time to build it. Wow. Okay. Um, and that theme continues throughout the production. There's, a, there's another note on the 14th of August before weekly videotaping the design department hadn't had the script for episode one. They said they were in a very serious position. And the weird thing is, everyone else had had the script. The cast had had the script. So this is mismanagement. This is this is not the uh, the late scripts of legend that we've heard. Yeah. This this is the the failure to disseminate the information that the team needs to do their work. And this is being put at Douglas Camfield's door. Well, there's another note in November. The chief designer said uh, this production is a near disaster, and it is the fault of Douglas Camfield. And there's a continued feeling that this guy bit off more than he could chew. And and they they tried to assign two directors to do these 12 episodes because they said it was it was more than one guy could handle. Very fascinating. Because Douglas Canfield is by no means at this point a novice director, is he? Because he's no. already done, you know, he's already done The Crusade. Uh, he's already done half of Planet of Giants. That's fascinating. But it's an enormous task. Yeah. And the irony is, of course, that we see the end result and it's it's a tour de force. And yeah. and, uh, and the complaints behind the scenes don't reflect what we end up enjoying, as far as we know. Yeah, you've also got, you also get the sense that John Wiles perhaps didn't have his shoulder fully behind the, the, the wheel on it. Yes. You, you, you get the sense that they handed it to Douglas Canfield and said, this is your problem. <laughs> I think one of the things that strikes me uh, watching the existing episodes mm. is the production design looks great and the sets look massive. Yeah. The Dalek control room set looks looks big. Yeah. And it's, yeah, okay, it's sparse, but it, it's beautifully designed and it looks interesting. Mm. And in the missing episodes, I think the biggest loss is the episode where we... Uh, would have seen the Dalek Pursuit ship, which was this enormous set. They built the entire exterior of the Dalek Pursuit ship and they built the entire interior mm. to match it. Um, and the interior is this in 
incredible kind of array of, of, of pistons around the outside. They kind of look like pistons to me and uh, control desks in the center. And it matches nicely with the outside and the outside has these enormous sort of tubular structures and they've got these struts and it's great. And I, and I think that's, um, I think it's a real loss. I think that'd be really interesting to see that enormous set because it looks really impressive in the, in the photos. And in terms of production design, they did they did their usual thing, and this is the stuff that interests me: is that how they recycle the the prop components and the 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 elements uh, picked from one design to another. So you've got the you know when Stephen does the gravity force experiment, yeah, and he encases himself in the force field, and the the technology he uses for that is actually the chair from the space museum that the doctor was interrogated in. So you've got all these little recycled prop components and you've got big control room panels on the outside walls that have been used later in Power of the Daleks and Macro Terror, Enemy of the World. You can see them in color in a film called They Came From Beyond Space. You love um, your panels, it's brilliant. Oh, I love my big panels. Those big panels uh, keep me up at night. <laughs> There's all kinds of stuff. There's some uh, stools that look like sort of egg timer shaped that first appear in the sensorites and they appear everywhere. So they crop up in uh, Dalek Master Plan as well. And um, you can always find these same bits. Yeah. It's always interesting following the breadcrumb trail. I could ring my buzzer for this, but I don't know if it's a su suitable interjection. <laughs> but now, just in terms of uh, interesting reuse of props, the, uh, the necklace that Zephon wears later becomes the briefly the symbol of time lord society <laughs> uh, so far as we know it in the war games and then is promptly forgotten so moving back to the story my notes say we're going to talk about tone and pacing paul I mean, what I'm wondering is, based on what Gav said earlier about Terry Nation having had a, a six-part plan for this story before it was bumped up to 12, the tone of that original story wouldn't have changed. And it, so it wouldn't have, it wouldn't have been um, trying to be an epic, would it? It's just a story that's had some other bits grafted onto it. So is that something fans have brought to it over the years? looking back at it and saying, oh, so that is a story of epic sweeping grandeur. Is that not something anybody would have considered at the time? You've got this situation where uh, the chase had been this whimsical pursuit through time with comedic moments and daft characters. They very much didn't want to do this again. So the Dalek Master Plan was conceived as a punchy thriller in a gritty future and it was a world of corruption and spies and prison planets and weird facilities and mm. the security service and all this kind of stuff but that was as a, a six-parter and then it gets suddenly extended and they say well what can we do to extend it so they they add four episodes of a whimsical pursuit through time with comedic moments and daft characters and that's uh, just you you kind of get this mm. the chase squeezed in <laughs> before episode 11 returns uh, of the the sort of consistent tone but the i think the the finesse of camfield and the the this kind of hard edge that he brings it kind of makes the the whimsical elements don't completely lift you out of the horror 
of the world that Master Plan has created. Yeah. You think that's mostly down to Canfield's um, direction of them rather than the fact that they're not really written. I always feel that as comedy, they're not as punchy as they could be, other than Seven. But um, it always seems curiously muted with odd moments that, are, you know, with a lot of stuff with the monk, I feel like it would have been funnier in the context of the time meddler than it is here. I couldn't, I couldn't work out if it was Dennis Spoon having an off day or just trying to be faithful to the context. I kind of feel like Spooner was trapped into doing what he did because the, the the gritty plot, like Gav said, is already locked in place. So where else can he go? Yeah, it's interesting because if we if we hadn't had, it is continuing the travelogue that started in um, in episode three as soon as they leave Kemble the first time. We're essentially just moving. If it wasn't for the fact that you might go back to Kemble at the end of six. In six, and um, and then we get a sort of half-time pause. If you if if it wasn't for the fact that you had to have to break, have episode seven, and then come back again, it, I think the whole thing would feel much more seamless, and the tone would it would look like the tone had gradually changed. I think the tone is slightly undermined by the stakes changing, and the stakes change as soon as the time travel element is introduced, because. This universe is created of politics and traitors and characters, and you have a, a core of antagonists. And then the minute you drop out of time, those antagonists become essentially irrelevant. You you get the Daleks and Mavic Chen, follow them to Egypt. But then the new antagonists are, are, are this bunch of Egyptians or, or, you know, the Hollywood people or whoever they happen to bump into. There's no sense of of the sort of political continuity of all the uh, the espionage and and uh, the the framework that's been created in the year four thousand, and and it really undermines the sense of wouldn't it be awful to be set against the state, a, a corrupt or totalitarian state, or you know, I mean, it's been suggested that this is sort of embryonic Blake Seven, mm. Um, mm. and. So, so this idea that that you've got this awful government and it, it's corrupt and you don't know who you can trust—you've got Daxter, he betrays them, and Mavic Chen and all these people. Oh, but then you just pop in the TARDIS and suddenly you're in Egypt or, or Hollywood or, or Zed cars, and and it really it, it takes the wind out of this idea that that it's a it's a horrible, oppressive environment and world to exist in because it reminds you that with the TARDIS you can just pop out of it and it it's fine you just go somewhere else and it's nicer it's another problem to deal with or a funnier problem or a, or a whimsical monk who's gonna just like uh, uh, inconvenience your afternoon and this sense of, of a of a sort of dystopian future ebbs away and you never get that back even when they go back to Kemble mm. it's a it's a whole different set of problems it's the Dalek invasion and then they talk into the prisoners in the in the cells and uh, but you never get that sense back of the first bunch of episodes that there's a there's an established world that uh that there's a threat i compared to the war games earlier and i think this is another some of the, in the earlier episodes up to five it was reminding me of that in the sense like we were seeing the start of an epic length story in that there were layers of characters when we have the daleks and the delegates the de- infighting between the delegates carlton chen's number two who's either plotting to betray him or or usurp him and we it reminds me of the security chief and the war chief and the warlord that sort of setup of layers of hierarchies of power structures 
And as you say, and that, that could well have, have sustained <laughs> the second half of the story if, for whatever reason, Dennis Spooner had been interested in that. Did he plot out the second half of the story independently of Terry Nation? No. Well... Did he say to Terry Nation, why not put the monk in there and... So at the end of May, they get this extension to uh, 13 and then 12 episodes, supposedly. And the the story goes that the production team, Spooner and Tosh and Wiles and Nation, all got together and put their heads together and tried to work out how to turn a six-episode story into a 12-episode story, which is why I think that the six-episode story, the, the, the core of it is still there. The first storyline that comes out of that, which I imagine is the uh, middle of June of that year, it doesn't have the monk in it at all. And um, I think after Spooner was commissioned, which was the start of July, he probably said, what about this character? We could we could mm. inject him into it for, for a couple or three episodes. And, and uh, that might spice things up. Does the time travel element already exist at this point? Is it already a, a chase between the Daleks and the Doctor through time and space? And does that inspire yeah. him to think of adding the monk into the mix? Well, the interesting thing is that the in the earliest uh, storyline that we've got, the Daleks are much more involved in the element of the chase through space. So the Daleks turn up on the penal planet, the Daleks turn up in New Washington, and the Daleks turn up on the planet of mists which is what does end up happening the original storyline episode seven was just the zed cars episode episode eight the daleks pursue them to the volcano and the daleks pursue them through hollywood so the original intention was that you would have had presumably we would have had the daleks through the hollywood film set <laughs> so it would have been much more like the chase as it was originally Conceived. Yes. Well, we dodged a bullet uh, there. Yeah. Well, episode eight, uh, the original intention was that it would have ended with a, a rendition of Old Lang Syne. So we dodged another bullet there. <laughs> episode nine, the Daleks, they follow them to the pyramids. Episode 10, they land at an atom bomb testing site and then they eventually reach Varga. But I mean, th th these are interesting little kind of vignettes, but it's already well Terry Nation writing mm. this. Terry Nation just writing, how about they land at the pyramids? How about they land yeah. at an atom bomb test site? Dennis Spooner's then got it. And then they go to a... Here you go, Dennis. But he's done that from the off, hasn't he? And the, the production design often can't keep up. <laughs> I cite the hugging statue in the Keys of Marinus or the, <laughs> the monkey bars in the chase. And they just can't so, keep up with it, can they? So regardless of whether you think that the second half of the story fits or whether you think it completely ruins it, Dennis Spooner isn't responsible for that. Dennis Spooner is actually, has actually brought some mm. shape and uh, some extra interest to Terry Nation's grab bag of, of unused ideas. I find the pacing bizarre in itself. In, the, in episode four, Terry Nation kills off the, one of the two carryover companions from the previous story, Katerina. He kills off a companion in the story, Brett Vion. He also kills off Daxter, who we meet in that episode. And all of that tension seems to dissipate when we get to five and six and beyond. And none of that tension comes back, really, until, what, episode 12? And so he seems to have shot his bolt a bit early in that regard. 
yeah, I think it's that thing of of you can drop those characters in at that point in the story if you have a a, a brief hiatus and then bring it mm. to a a grand conclusion. Yeah, but if if yep. you then actually need to tread water for five episodes, you you might well think about keeping them alive. Having all that death and disaster and gloom at the end of part four of a six-part story is like a three-act structure. That's yeah. the typical, everything's the, the lowest possible ebb is at the end of act two. Mm. Mm. Here, as you say, I mean, the, and the trajectory of those first four episodes, I don't think there's ever been a story with quite so much momentum. Yeah, it's perfect. Mm. Yeah. And so it's hardly surprising it can't keep it up. Mm. But, you know, to try and take the other other perspective it does at least set up set its stall early you've got the memory of all that horror that brutality of episode four which lingers with you <laughs> not necessarily for through every episode that follows um it's probably pushing it a bit by the time we get to the cricket match but i mean it does it's there in the back of your mind that things might not turn out roses as indeed they don't. It just so happened that on my Twitter feed today, I don't know what newspaper it's from, but someone uploaded a cutting. Why I have banned Doctor Who in our home. My three-year-old daughter has always watched Doctor Who on BBC TV. She loves the Daleks, and we gave her one on her last on her last birthday. But I will not allow her to see the programme again after last week's episode. This showed a screaming girl held captive by a hairy man before being flung into space. It shocked me that this programme, which has become so popular with viewers of all ages should have deteriorated into the horror spectacle I saw on Saturday. While not agreeing that adult viewing should be censored, I suggest that both channels take a, both channels <laughs> uh, take a look at programs that they put on before 7pm. If they are unfit for the younger or nervous child, they should warn parents. Well, she'd have been very glad that uh, Nation's original draft was toned down because it's quite a bit more sadistic he's uh he's holding his knife to the companion's neck and saying oh i'm not gonna i'm not gonna kill her because then i won't have a hostage but oh i could do all sorts of exciting things it's no it's no different to what's happened to barbara over the previous two years yes no (laughs) (laughs) yeah Uh, it's it's an inch away from the sexual sadism that we've had in the delights of the the time meddler, but uh, yeah, he he he's yeah, he's pretty great. He c- cuts off a lock of her hair, and he says, "No, I I won't kill her. I'll just hurt her." And they toned it down a fair amount to the version that, that woman's complaining about. So, bearing in mind that we've had four episodes of of tension, thrills, and brutality, it's gone a bit flat, and then we've had a dramatic U-turn into comedy hijinks. We do bring it back ultimately to. Something approximating the atmosphere of the mm. early episodes, don't we? In the second half of 12. Yeah. I and, mean, you know, there's some mystery in episode 11, and there's a lot of desperation and horror at the end of the story. Is this Dennis Spooner trying to... Is this entirely because that's from De- Terry Nation's original plot, rather than Dennis Spooner thinking, I probably ought to bring this back around to where it started? Terry Nation's uh, early storylines are all very consistent with what Spooner ends up writing, including the... Galactic Council being locked up and they get freed to assemble their forces Mm. against the Daleks and then uh, the final episode is a one-line summary this is the final punch-up with the Daleks and the time destructor gets activated. Now Terry Nation's version didn't involve the death of Sarah Kingdom did it? No Terry Nation's versions all have Vicky and Stephen surviving 
to the end because when he was commissioned, uh, Maureen O'Brien was still the companion and that was the... Hang on, who dies in episode four then in that version? No one. No one in Nation's original version. So once somebody's decided to kill off a companion in episode four, he jumps on that and with glee. Yeah, so in all the storyline versions and when Terry Nation starts writing his script, the companion is Vicky and he delivers his first two scripts with the companion as Vicky and his entire storyline has Vicky in all the way through. And then he gets the feedback from the production team that um, she's being replaced. And then he uh, amends things on the fly as he goes and initially puts Katerina in. And then he gets the memo to get rid of her as well and to come up with someone else. But uh, <laughs> so just to finish this through. So is Sarah Kingdom always the replacement for what Katerina and or Brett Vian? Well... I was looking at the sequence of events, and so uh, the start of July, that's when Dennis Spooner gets commissioned, and that's when I think the second storyline gets written, which includes the monk. And in that storyline, Stephen and Vicky still survive till the end, so I think early July, I think Maureen O'Brien's still on board. And then the second, third week of July, they're doing studio work in Galaxy 4. Now, there's a story of Maureen O'Brien butting heads with the writer so that to me suggests it might be a little bit earlier than studio work I'm not sure they would still be having writer meetings while they were in studio so I think uh, it's probably fair to say the writing was on the wall by the first or second week of July in terms of Maureen O'Brien and I think that's when uh, episodes one and two of Master Plan were written or started and on the 16th of July, so we get to mid-July, and we've got an acceptance date, not a commissioning date. There is actually no commissioning date. We've got an acceptance date for Nation's uh, outline and script material for Master Plan. So I, I suspect that's episodes one and two, and that's still got Vicky in. But then I think just after that, just after mid-July, I think that is when they decide, without telling her, that Maureen O'Brien is going. So mid-July, or even early mid-July, Nation knows Vicky will be replaced, but Nation has no idea who the character is. And when he writes episode three, he knows that uh, Maureen O'Brien is no longer in Master Plan, but he continues to use the name Vicky in his script, but he makes a note saying that he doesn't know the name of the girl who will replace her, but he knows that she will be replaced. So that we can then infer that early mid-July, the Mythmaker script is amended to remove Vicky, and we can infer that mid-July, Paul Erickson, who's writing the arc at this point, he must start a draft, and he start to draft with Katerina. So we can in, infer that Katerina gets uh, created sort of mid-July, which I think is a bit earlier than people generally assume. But then really quickly, they realise Katerina won't work. But it looks like nobody tells Paul Erickson that, and he carries on writing the arc. But Terry Nation does get told, because Terry Nation's then writing episode four, and he's asked to kill off the new companion. So he writes his scene in, in episode four where the companion gets ejected out of the airlock, but he already knows that it's the companion that replaces Vicky. 
Um, and he knows a little bit about her because he puts a note in his script that says that he he, he writes a note that says something like, Donald, you, you write this, uh, but, you know, you write a script to do with something to do with her being the daughter of the gods. So he clearly knows it's Katerina, but he is not invested enough to uh, write the big end speech. So Tosh sorts that out in the in the redraft. And Nation then creates Sarah Kingdom, and he advises Dennis Spooner. And the reason I'm confident of this sequence of events all playing out before the end of July is because Spooner's scripts for episode eight and nine, Volcano, and as it was then, Land of the Pharaohs, this is July... They have Sarah Kingdom in. So by the end of July, Spooner is already writing Katerina's replacement. So I'm reasonably confident that there's a sequence of events that plays out over at least a fortnight and maybe three weeks where Vicky is replaced and then Katerina is replaced and then Sarah is created and Spooner factors that into his script's dated July. Now bear in mind that the final day of recording of Galaxy 4 was July the 30th. So Maureen O'Brien was still in studio doing her job, having been replaced twice over. <laughs> <laughs> and then the principal cast go on holiday. And it's at that point that the everyone knew, it seems, from what I'm seeing, everyone knew except her. And he's, okay, well, just tell me, before I start writing another entire draft, this new girl, what accent does she have? <laughs> so while we're talking about the companions, let's start with Katerina, in that it is writ large in the, in the script and obvious that she does not work as a sci-fi companion. I'll just cite one example. They decide that she has to have explained to her what a key is when uh, <laughs> when the key is discussed with Brett Vine getting into the TARDIS. But when he's in there, she's perfectly au fait with what the main switch is. It's, it's just an impossible thing to write, isn't it? It, it? She is so far out of time. They They sort of give it a nod, but... But she's also very clearly a very ignorant person even from her own time because keys have been around for thousands of years. Yeah. I was quite touched, though, by William Hartnell's portrayal with her. They were very tender towards each other, or he was very tender towards her. So kudos to him for that. But it's very clear she just would not have worked as a character. And, I'm and glad that they we had this experiment, whatever reason, bizarre series of circumstances brought it about, because I think it works very nicely. It's quite touching, and you can tell where it's going right from the beginning. Um, um, I think they make that clear, don't they? They even bring it into the end of the Myth Makers that she's, she thinks <laughs> she's dead yeah. and seems disappointed that she isn't and can't wait to bring about that happy eventuality. But there's a mournfulness <laughs> and a tragedy and a sense of hopelessness about the, about the poor woman all the way through. And I find it quite touching. Maybe, maybe I'm alone there. There's a scene cut from the Myth Makers where she uh, foreshadows her own death. And that, that would have sort of echoed nicely into Masterplan had it not been cut. She doesn't foreshadow that it's, uh, it's the Doctor that will basically ensure that she dies. It's the Doctor who leaves the door open. And it's the Doctor who sends Katerina yes. to go and check 
that the door is safely secured, <laughs> which it isn't because there's a murderous man lurking in the corner. So, um, yeah, so the Doctor's pretty directly responsible for that. Speaking of the Doctor, William Hartnell's struggling in this, isn't he? We haven't really dwelled on the on the fluffs apart from for amusement with some notorious lines, but he's getting a very yeah. high miss rate, isn't he, on his lines here. Amusingly, he does say, take us back to Kendall at one point for some mint cake. <laughs> But he has a very, he, he's very clearly struggling with the lines here, and it's sad to see. I wonder see. how much is due to the script changes. He's complaining mm. very late on, like November, that the scripts are no good, and Wiles says it's okay, we're still rewriting them and it'll be fine. And it, mm. it just makes you wonder how much of the stuff that he fluffs was given to him after he'd learnt a version that he'd seen earlier, and I guess we'll never know, but... Um... That, that's a generous reading. I hope that's the case. Uh, one thing I did notice with him is it's it's well known that he got on very well with Peter Purvis, and there's a lovely moment. I think it's in episode two where Stephen is still injured on the ground, and he gives him a lovely tap on the leg. It's a really nice moment, saying, I hope you're okay, my boy. And then he's straight into Grumpy Doctor character again with him, and and he gets up and he says something like, well, you better pull yourself together so we can go and defeat the Daleks. There was a very nice touch there. I think he's very powerful in this story. I think he's really assertive, and he's butting heads with Brett a lot. And I think that's really interesting that Brett is written as this sort of new lead, when you've already got Stephen as a rival lead, and there's a lot of really decent lines mm. of of the Doctor just pushing up against Brett and and his ideas and who's in control of this spaceship and uh, that kind of thing is just asserting who's in control at any given time and who has the who's the authority to formulate a plan for the next thing that happens and it's certainly initially in the first few episodes it's Brett's <clears throat> universe. And you think Brett knows what's going on? Mm. I can I can steer you through these uh, these hurdles, and uh, and the doctors sort of chipping in ideas as it goes. And of course, he he comes up with the genius things yeah. as, that solves all of the big problems. I actually noted down in episode during episode two that Brett, Stephen, and Katerina, actually, and the Doctor are actually a really nice mm. blend of characters. There was some. Uh, towards the end, there was a scene where they all had a different perspective. You had Katerina with her thousands of years old perspective. You had Stephen, who's the identifier. And then you had Brett, as you say, whose universe it is. Mm. And it actually works It's really interesting because well. Stephen was the future boy. But in this story, he's written quite clearly <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> closer to our time than to the year 4000. Yeah. And treated as a bit of a hick by all these... But there's that nice, uh, that nice fun bit where his future technology is still rubbish compared to the future future technology of, yeah. of Sarah, and she's ridiculing <laughs> him for having these ideas about gravity power. It's yeah. really nice. Uh... Somebody is keeping tabs on who these characters are. We can say that, and that's something it doesn't lose throughout the whole story. So it's Nation Spooner and and Tosh, whoever's responsible, and of course. Peter Purvis is very game again, isn't he? And, with, you know, with no small talent, he gets himself into the Christmas oh. episode, doesn't he, with his scarce <laughs> accent and, and does all that, those capers in the, in the second half of the Christmas episode. He's a very game. He's very good. There's so much visual stuff we're probably missing as well because there's, there's stage directions about yeah. him doing kind of uh, almost like pantomime 
police movements and uh, and there's the the uh, Keystone Cops. Yeah, the yeah. Keystone so Cops stuff makes you wonder yeah. how much we're we're missing out on. He had some good funny visual business in the gunfighters. I think he would have made a very good go of it. So we'll move on to Brett and Sarah, the two space space agent contemporary characters. Brett, of course, Nicholas Courtney in his first Doctor Who role. He's quite effective, I find. Brett is uh, so much harder as a character in in Nation's original. He huh. uh, th- that scene in the TARDIS where he's trying to get the companion to get the pills out of his pocket to treat Stephen. It, it's oh a, yeah. It's in the yeah. original. It's a complete ploy. He's he's just lying about the cure to get one over. Um, and and that becomes a real thing in Tosh's rewrite when he's when he's uh, immobilized in the chair and he can't actually overpower anyone. But he is he's just lying to get someone to like try and put their hand in his pocket so he can punch him in the face. But there's all kinds of lines early on in where he's he's happy to leave the planet without the Doctor. He says he he'll he'll just kill them if they get in his way. He's he's much more businesslike in the in the secret agent department um he's no nonsense mm. and that's really i mean it's not massively toned down but it's softened to, to make him a, a a more likable character and any thoughts on sarah kingdom played by the wonderful gene marsh sarah kingdom it's it's easy to lose the sense when you're watching the reconstructions or listening to the audio that her gender is is a twist um, so in yes. Nation's original draft, they constantly refer to her as Agent 550 uh, in advance of the big reveal. So it's like Agent 550 is coming to talk to you. And what's Agent 550? Agent is an absolute hard, just a tough operator. And that's that's tweaked slightly in the final version is they just r- repeatedly use the uh, the surname the gender gender neutral surname that just kingdom yep. is this and kingdom is that and then uh and then a woman walks in and there's a there's a nice little uh tristram carey flourish of of music of oh it's a woman it's um, not a great twist it's not a great <laughs> twist because we've had about um, one and a half minutes of build-up maximum but um I... <laughs> according to pixley in in the rehearsal script it says the following She's about 25. Very beautiful. She is dressed in black. At her waist is a space-age pistol. Her rather masculine attire only serves to accentuate her very feminine figure. (laughs) When she speaks, her voice, though very definitely female, has an echo of steel behind it. That's interesting. Uh, That's not far off Nation's original description. Uh, Nation is a little bit more uh, human about it and says something along the lines of, she she has an icy persona of steel, but has the potential for her human emotions to show through, or words to that effect. But uh, yeah, it's an interesting bit of characterization. Uh, Nation writes it, but yeah, he he does write the same bit about her her uh, her feminine form being accentuated by her masculine clothes. Mm. She was um, originally not Brett Vion's sibling. They were lovers originally. Mm. I mean, uh, we. So was she supposed to say Brett Vine was my yes. mother? Yes. Well, she said. Um, she said, "Don't you understand? I was in love with him instead uh, of right. he was my brother." But that's not to say they weren't still lovers. But um, <laughs> we don't know. It's 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 uncertain. 
Um, but fundamentally, I mean, she's she's a great pseudo companion. We could call her that. Um, I remember that phrase. <laughs> I just find it a little frustrating that she doesn't get an enormous payoff in episode twelve. She dies for her disobedience. She was told to go back to the TARDIS and wait, and she doesn't. And as a result. She just ages to death for no reason at all in the sands. And, and everybody unless... in this story dies for no reason, though, don't they? I know, but yeah, and, and you could you could talk about the sort of general futility of the story and the horrors and everything else, but from a structural point of view, you kind of hope that hmm. somebody hanging back to do something in a last desperate attempt to help save the day might fulfill that. Uh, potential rather than just sort of hanging around and then dying when if they just weren't so disobedient they'd be in the TARDIS at the end going well that was a fun adventure and we defeated the Daleks Marvik Chen one of the great centerpiece villains of the classic era played by Kevin Stoney (laughs) who three years later uh, would pull off a, a not dissimilar performance as Tobias Vaughan in The Invasion. He's Doctor Who's first and, I don't know, possibly only attempt at a Bond villain, isn't he? So he's the flip side to Mark Corey's James Bond. He, do, we, he doesn't actually ever get to face off against any of the, um, the Bond substitutes, does he? So maybe that's where the analogy falls down. But And he's, by some, by several degrees, bigger than any single villain we've had in the Bragman before. So I think he's one of those many small... I was going to say that, that this epic quality that the story has, I think, comes from the fact that it's more than some of its parts. I think it's lots of little things that, that coalesce to make it feel more than just... You know, the length is only one of them. And I think he's one of those things. He wouldn't fit in a four or six part story, would he? I mean, okay, he nearly did. No. But... Um, no. I just think it burst out of the seams. When I was watching, I was struck by the Bond villain thing and also struck by the echo which would have happened a couple of years later with um, Salamander. Very, very practically, in that they both start off with this um, projected background interview Hmm. of them both being benevolent characters and then they both go down this path of uh, Bond villainy, don't they? And he's better written in the early episodes, but it's kind of justifiable because his arc is careening towards madness but he, he's he gives the daleks a run for their money verbally as well as all the plot machinations in a way that most few characters ever have i mean the, the doctor to this yeah. point very rarely takes the piss out of the daleks he treats them with the righteous fury that they deserve but chen just raises his little his pinky and and makes some um, rather camp little quips at their expense yeah Again, quoting uh, Rob Shearman and Toby Haydock in their book, they say it's a big weakness of the plot that it's very early on that the Daleks reveal they're going to exterminate Chen. But I disagree. I think that's essential to Chen's character. And that you're sort of thinking, well, how can he get away with it this time? Or how long can he last? And I thought that was uh, one of the few points that they make that I disagree with. It sort of adds to Chen's sense of a... Of a villain who can sort of carry himself by his own confidence, his own overconfidence. Watching it this time, I did wonder idly if it's revealed too early to the viewer that Chen is betraying humanity. That twist comes in the first episode. But um, I think with hindsight, that's because this is supposed to be, this story is supposed to be half its length. 
Yeah. If it had been yeah. planned as yeah. 12 episodes, Fair I think point. that would have come in you know, a few episodes later and been an extra an extra twist. But also in what context could you have had scenes with him? Well, exactly. It would have had to be plotted completely differently. We he wouldn't yeah. he couldn't have been there with the other delegates at the start. It would have been a different story, but I'm just I'm just You'd have had three episodes of him in the TV background of people fighting well, he, over watching news coverage of him. I'm not I'm not going to sit here and rewrite the entire story for your pleasure, well, you Gavin. Should. No. No, you have you I have to it. you have I to pay good it. money for that. <laughs> <laughs> but I have some ideas. Can we talk about the Daleks? No. Seeing as we've got the uh one of the two world foremost Dalek experts here. And I'm going to do a little diversion. So I asked for comments on which missing moments people would most like to see. And we'll go through those in part two. One of the comments was made by a a gentleman called Jess Jerkovic. And let's just talk about Jess for a moment. Because I was scrolling through Twitter however long ago, a year ago or so. And... The thing about being a classic Doctor Who fan is that I get affected when someone does something that is so stupendously nerdy and so stupendously talented that it knocks me for six. Gav, your Terranation Army videos would be an example of this. You just think, oh my God, someone has got a connection in my niche. And I was scrolling through Twitter and I heard someone playing a piece of piano music and it took me a few seconds to get it because you don't normally hear it on piano. I'll play it in now. is of course from the seeds of death and it's brilliant utterly brilliant and uh jess has a project on youtube called dudley simpson is doctor who and he transcribes the music learns it and then plays it and gives a really interesting musical talk about its composition and people have given us a shout out on their podcasts recently so I thought I'd pass on the good karma and give Jess a shout out. And he is criminally undersubscribed. Absolutely. It's ridiculous how few views he gets. It is ridiculous, isn't it? Every single Classic Who fan should follow Jess Jerkovic on um, on YouTube and on Twitter. It is, uh, it is the stuff that we are here to listen to as Classic Doctor Who fans. And I recommend everyone checks it out. Anyway, what Jess had to say, and it is a, an ob- a very uh, apposite observation about 
60s Daleks. He said this, any scene with a group of Daleks he liked to see recovered. Around this time, the Dalek actors took care to create vivid movements and twitches. They seem like living creatures rather than just props, especially the episode 12 scenes with Marvik Chen's death and the Doctor's standoff. And that's absolutely yeah. true. There's one scene, and I think it's in episode 2, I might be wrong, where there's a, a lovely Douglas Camfield shot of this Dalek. And this Dalek is doing everything, and I can't work out how the hell the operator is doing it. He's jingling it from side to side as it talks. The lights are going. The eye stalk is going and rotating. It's just amazing. And, it, and there is a sense that some people can get more out of these Daleks th- than others. It's definitely true that in the 60s, I think that actors inside they load their craft the hard way and um it's an interesting thing if you watch uh dalek's invasion earth 2150 ad <laughs> they hired one proper dalek operator uh which was robert jewell <laughs> and a load of extras who didn't know what they were doing and it's pretty easy to see in any given scene which is robert jewell uh in any given dalek casing because he is moving <laughs> more than one thing at one time and it's really nice, right. and uh, I think the Daleks in Masterplan are brilliant. I think that I think they have an energy and a life to them, and uh, yeah, all their all their bits and bobs are moving at all times. And I think to yeah, I mean even like Death to the Daleks, uh, even into the seventies, I think was uh, was really nice energy and movement when you see them on on Exelon, and they're just kind of like twitching backwards and forwards. And I think the voices in Masterplan are the best 60s Dalek voices. I think Nicholas Briggs says that as well, doesn't he, for what it's worth? That's what he's trying to reproduce. I mean, the, the, in the original Dalek serial, the modulation's good, and obviously it's the original Dalek, so who's to say what's right and wrong, but it's not quite the intonation that we're used to. And then the intonation becomes more stylized from Dalek Invasion of Earth onwards, but the modulation's really poor. And it's not particularly great in the chase, and it's not particularly good in Mission to the Unknown. The really um, famous, familiar style of of Dalek intonation and that nice, harsh modulation uh, in Masterplan is basically perfect. And it kind of goes again in Power of the Daleks. It's it's not quite as uh, beefy, and then it comes back in Evil of the Daleks, and it goes off the rails in the Daleks. <laughs> and the Daleks have a lovely sheen on their domes. Have you seen that? In episode 10. Beautiful domes. I think Shawcraft had fully refurbished the props in mid-production. Ah. For pre-filming, they had four silver props, and they did all of the uh, burning down the jungle and stuff with four silver props. Then they repainted one of them black, and then they did all of the early episodes with one black and three silver. And then f- for the middle yeah. of the production... For the Dalek escapades in Egypt, they had four silver again. So they were doing refurbishments throughout the production. And then for the final episodes, they had one black and three silver again. So they were constantly going back to Shawcraft's workshops, getting tarted up, fixing the usually broken Mm. slats, occasionally getting a, a bit of a lick of paint, things like that. So yeah, sometimes they suddenly look unexpectedly beautiful. Before we leave characters, can I talk about Carlton? Because he's not, he's not somebody that anyone ever mentions. But this time round, yeah. I became rather fixated on him. He, he moves beyond just a character who's there to serve the plot and starts building his part up. <laughs> he's 
talking back to to Chen, scheming with him, scheming behind his back. Around about episode four and five, it looks like this is going to be this going to be the A plot. The Daleks having outlined their plan of falling into the background, and it looks as mm. though Chen's going to have his work cut out for him with the delegates on one side and and Carlton on the other. And then, after Christmas, he's never seen again. One wonders how things might have played out if Nation had delivered his six scripts and they'd had the luxury of time, and then Dennis Spooner had taken those and written a concluding six parts based on on this uh, space espionage story. Yeah. But as it was, they were re- writing them concurrently based on a storyline worked out, obviously, in advance. I mean, it wasn't all done on the fly. But if they could have worked something out that wasn't two uh, sort of split stories glued together, that would have been a really nice character to to continue to its conclusion. I think the disappearance of Carlton is the, the single biggest sign that it was that this story was split down the middle. Yeah, that line is rather... I, I, t- I think it's his last line, is it? Where he goes, second, next to you. Exactly. As if he's going to supplant him at some point, and it's completely wasted. He's got his it? own cliffhanger. Yeah. And so, I mean, it's it's really obvious when you look when you look out for it. And it's a nice, chewy yeah. performance as well. Don't know the actor from anything else. What did Big Finish do with him? <laughs> <laughs> Nothing yet. But I'll be on. I'll be on the phone in the morning. <laughs> so, Tim, the delegates, of course. But hopefully, you've been thinking long and hard about you know the various changes um, in the character names, character designations, the the designs, the costumes since Mission. Well, I have the answer to that, yeah. Paul. In that, I was supplied it by a lovely fellow called David Niven Wood, and what he has suggested to me via private message when we were discussing the Daleks' master plan of an afternoon, as you do, is that the reason the delegates change between productions is because they are not delegates in person only. They are delegates as a representative of a planet. So suppose that half the delegates had fallen foul of the Daleks between productions, been exterminated, and then been replaced by slightly different characters or characters from different planets in the meantime. It's not uh, bad. During the meanwhile. It's nice, isn't it? It suggests that possibly... mm. I'll buy that. Yeah. Well, it fits with all the machinations that we do see on screen. Why isn't Chen called Earth, then? (laughs) (laughs) The one with the one that looks like a Christmas tree isn't in it, so I really don't care. Yeah, Centriel, he's mm. the best one. <laughs> That's the only one anyone cares about. I know I did uh, Peter Buttermouth. I praised him to death last time. Is there anything to say here? Uh, he feels slightly uh, uh, excessive to me. People at the time delighted in the uh, the interplay between the monk and William Hartnell, between Butterworth and Hartnell. It's indulgent, but by God, what would it? be like without him (laughs) i mean i mean nation wrote a synopsis for dennis spooner that said why don't they go to egypt i mean before they put peter butterworth into that since you've outlined what we could have had i've completely changed my perspective on this (laughs) i still think there is a better version of dark's master plan that doesn't where those four episodes are more tonally consistent but what we've got is better than what we could have had. I'm going to sign my buzzer now because of nipples. Ah! Because 
According to the wardrobe requirements, when we see Brett Vion mm-hmm. on the uh, three-dimensional video screen, when they're uh, assessing him as a threat, uh, I think it's Marvik Chen talking to Sarah Kingdom about uh, how he's the, the, the enemy. The wardrobe requirements say that Nicholas Courtney will be undressed in his top half from from the waist bare upwards chested. and that we get a we get a bare chested shot of him moving uh in this three-dimensional screen scenario so you would have uh, got a beautiful shot of his nipples let's talk about the the story and the plot a little bit i do have a few issues so the whole thing is that Marvik Chen is indispensable because only he, as guardian of the solar system, can dig out this terranium from Uranus. And it took 50 years, so that's a big problem. But the Daleks have a time machine. Yeah, the, the, the introduction <laughs> of the time machine undermines the entire story because the the time destructor... The notion of the time destruction—I mean, it's never—it's never actually explained in the final screen yeah. version of Master Plan as to what the time destructor is. I mean, we infer it, but in the in Nation's original draft, it's very clear, and it's it's the equivalent to uh, Invasion of the Dinosaurs. Right. The idea is that you roll back time on any given oh, planet wow. and invade it when it's earlier and more primitive, and. There's a there's a really neat speech of Marvik Chen, which is not uh, carried over into the final version, where he says, basically, with the time destructor, uh, I will remove all these stupid notions of democracy and take the Earth back to a point where uh, I can rewrite its history and I will become a god. And and his hmm. megalomania is framed really nicely with the with the time destructor and and its function in the story. And um, John Peel does a nice thing in the book when uh, when the subterfuges uh, carry over, and Mavic Chen decides he's going to invade Kemble when the Daleks aren't looking, steal the Time Destructor in the first planet. He's going to use the Time Destructor on his Scaro, and he's going to roll Scaro back and conquer Scaro, and he's going to take over. But it, the the Time Destructor is never properly explained no. in the final version. But but then it's it's massively undermined when the Daleks just roll in their time machine in Volcano and, uh, and say, well, we'll use the time machine to, uh, to go and pursue the, the vital component of our, of our time destructor device, which will allow us to go back in time and take control of worlds <laughs> when they were in earlier development. You just go and invade them with your time machine. You don't need the time destructor. It doesn't make any sense. Dare I say there's another nonsensical issue with the time destructor as well, in that it's not really clearly articulated throughout whether they're trying to conquer the universe or Earth. But in the last episode, it's revealed that they have 5,000 sort of battle-ready Daleks to go and invade the Earth. And they're going to put the time destructor in the first ship, right? We also find out, because Hartnell nicks the Time Destructor, that he, 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 he adjusts the setting and he makes it very clear that Time Destructors are single-use things. Because once the terranium starts burning, it burns out and it's done. So was this, this whole Time Destructor thing was obviously a ploy just to capture 
or roll back time originally, the Earth. So what are they going to do with the rest of the universe, <laughs> where the hard people are? It doesn't make any sense whatsoever, and it just completely takes the knees out of the whole 12 episodes of build-up. Because really, they're just using this terrific weapon to try and conquer the Earth. Something that they'd already managed, mentioned in the script, 200 and odd years before. Or, sorry, 2,000 and odd years before. Is it made perfectly clear that... I mean, it would make sense to me if the, the, the effects of the time destruction take some time to get going right. in episode 12. Yeah. And they seem to they seem to accelerate almost exponentially. Yeah. I mean, it would make sense as a weapon if you if it was going to roll out beyond the planet on which it's located and have effects throughout the system into the galaxy into the mm. universe. So the Daleks only have to set it off once. And because, I mean, I, I entirely agree that it has become very muddled between Nation Spooner as to what this thing does, and in the end, it's just a catchy name. It might as well be the Reality Bomb. <laughs> But it's it, again, it fits the epic f scale. The fact that it's—I um, don't think you're supposed to think about it too much. It's just supposed to be the, <laughs> no. the DSX machina of weapons. It's supposed to be the th the, the most frightening, terrifying weapon. Yeah. The if the terranium is uranium, then this is a you know a atomic bomb metaphor, and it's just the weapon we have to be afraid of. And I, you're, of course, you're right to be picky. It doesn't make any sense in the context in which we... I mean, if it's going to be the reality bomb that destroys everything and sort of rolls out, well, the, where are the Daleks going to go? They're in their fleet behind the lead ship with it. Well, exactly. <laughs> oh, but the, as, for the time, as for the time machine, yes, it doesn't make any sense. It's, the reasoning is that's not how time travel works in the programme at this point. And indeed, throughout most of Doctor Who... If you take it logically, you end up with the curse of the fatal death. You end up with the sort of Stephen Moffat version of time, where people can endlessly go round and round and round, and villains can re villains and the heroes can rewrite each other's schemes. You can't think that way with time travel in Doctor Who, otherwise the entire thing falls apart. And the Daleks use their time machine the same way the Doctor does. It might as well be a space machine. It's just a way of moving from one scenario to the other. Once they get out. They tend to forget that they're in another time and just have a, and just do, do their thing, get back in and, and move off. There's also something that doesn't quite sit comfortably, comfortably with me about the, the astronomy involved. And we've alluded to before about the confusion between galaxies and solar systems. Don't worry, I've fixed this. <laughs> <laughs> I've, I've spent a lot of time... Uh, thinking about this, worrying about this, right? And something occurred to me. Let me just get my notes. <laughs> so, okay, I'll give you the short version. Most people, and certainly when Terry Nation wrote this story, when you talk about galaxies, hmm. most people think about the big spiral galaxies. So most people, some people, uh, are aware that our next nearest galaxy is called Andromeda. Mm. And uh, a slightly smaller percentage of people will know that there's a galaxy out there called Triangulum. And uh, beyond that, nobody has any clue. Big galaxies, the distances between them are absolutely insane. Mm. Um, so I was working out a kind of idea, a hypothetical idea for a speed of hyperspace, right? 
Right. Um, so I came up with the idea that if it takes 10 minutes to cross a light year, yeah. the nearest star to Earth, which is Alpha Centauri, will take you 40 minutes to get to, which is that's an okay commute, isn't it? Um, so the 40 minutes to the nearest star at this arbitrary speed we've decided... <laughs> That would be a that would be thirty nine years to Andromeda, the next galaxy. Mm. So that's just kind of trying to give you the idea of the distances you're talking about. And then the the, the next there's another galaxy, uh, uh, NGC two four zero three. That'd be one hundred and fifty two years. So I mean, you're talking basically improbable distances. If you're talking about galactic politics, it doesn't make any sense. You couldn't have <laughs> a, a galaxy of politics where anyone cares about invading one galaxy to the next yeah. it would be it would be you know a, a small tribe in one village in in uh kent wanting to invade a small village in china two thousand <laughs> years ago it just it's just nonsense it's, there's no logic to it so that's that's the framework in which terry nation uh but the reality is there are loads of small galaxies that essentially <laughs> orbit the Milky Way. Uh, there are dwarf galaxies that orbit the Milky Way, mm. our galaxy. Um, so we've got our massive Milky Way galaxy, and around it are these tiny little clusters of stars. And if each of those was one of the galaxies that the delegates represented, they are really relatively close uh, in astronomical terms, some of these galaxies, some of these dwarf galaxies that orbit the Milky Way are closer to Earth than Earth is to the center of the galaxy. So you could have the situation where I like to think that the outer galaxies, as they call them in Masterplan, are these trifling little clusters of stars that all orbit around the Milky Way desperately hungry for power and looking at our big, huge, beautiful spiral galaxy thinking if only we could control something that big and that juicy and there's an interesting little bit in master plan is that they talk about how the solar system in our galaxy in the milky way has its reach its influence mm. beyond the solar system mm. so you can interpret this really neatly as saying that the solar system is is kind of the capital of the milky way and all these like fiddly little tiny galaxies that are orbiting the Milky Way close by are envious of the political situation. And Mavic Chen, <laughs> although he only runs the solar system, the solar system extends its influence throughout the Milky Way. So all these crappy little galaxies wandering around the outside, some of which like are only, I mean, some of these galaxies are only a thousand stars. I mean, they're, they're, they're really tiny. And, and they want more control so they they have their sights set on the conquest of the milky way so you're not going to these enormous intergalactic distances you can ignore andromeda and all these proper barred spiral galaxies that are out in the distance of the uh, depths of space it's all really local trivial galactic politics all centered around the milky way and you can resolve all of the nonsensical distances if you believe that all of the outer galaxies are these tiny little group of clusters around the Milky Way. And that's my solution to all of the master plan politics problems. Wow. 
Coming to a Terry Nation Army video <laughs> near you. That's an exclusive for you. <laughs> oh, it's beautiful. Wow. They've all got names. I can name you some. The Canis Major Dwarf Galaxy. Draco 2 is 70,000 light years from Earth. I mean, they're all relatively yeah. close. Bayus. Cephon Tran. <laughs> yeah. Salation. Yeah. The Salation Galaxy. Warrion. Mm. <laughs> Fantastic. Man. The only problem is they do mention that they all went to a meeting at uh, <laughs> at the uh, the Andromeda. Oh, but but I uh, well, that's neutral territory. Of course, they went there. No, was, I live in Kent, and I went to a meeting in Florida. No, no, it, this is a really local conference center named after Mrs. Andromeda. <laughs> and the name is a coincidence, and you just have to ignore that and half a dozen other lines of dialogue which also make no sense. So, Gav, while you're here with your expertise on the um, every aspect of the production, maybe you can answer me this. Doctor Who famously disappears for most of episode 11. Mm. And um, I'd always assumed that Hartnell was on holiday this week and that uh, he's only in the opening TARDIS scene. I assumed that must have been pre-filmed in the way that they often did. Normally, Free and Chesterton is a much more important character, but I assumed they'd done something similar here, <laughs> pre-filmed a bit and allowed him to clear off on holiday. And that's why we don't see him again for the next 22 minutes. But I gather that's not true. No. It's weird, isn't it? Hmm. Um, so if that's... He, if it's not that... <laughs> he was in studio, and he recorded his first TARDIS scenes of that day. And it's very illogical. The only clue, perhaps, is it was his birthday the next day. <laughs> is it possible they gave him the day off and they rewrote the entire episode? Well... If Verity Lambert was still in charge, I might be thinking maybe, but... Uh, it's odd. I mean... And this, of course, John Wells was just glad for any excuse to get him out of the studio. And by virtue, by virtue of his absence from two-thirds or most of episode 11, they also have to rewrite episode 12 to bring him in at an appropriate point, so he's missing from a third of that as well. He just pops up out yes. of nowhere, doesn't he? Uh, and is he, <laughs> is he always absent? Are there early drafts of episode 11 and 12 where we could see that? Yeah. Yeah, he was there, yeah. Yes, they reapportion his dialogue to mainly to Stephen. It's not the worst glossing over that I've ever seen, but it is pretty obvious. It's not quite like Tenth Planet 3, is it? With I remember the Doctor telling me off-screen that <laughs> the Cybermen are vulnerable to radiation. Hmm, well, there you go. Yeah, his, his birthday is the only conspicuous note in this whole peculiar affair, is... So they don't let him. They don't let him go off for a funeral of a beloved relative, but they will let him have a birthday party a day early. <laughs> In conclusion, then we've we've had a real mixed bag. We've all talked about things we like, things that don't make sense. Um, Paul, what's your overall impression and feeling about? Dalek's master plan. Well, as I already said, I think it's more than some of its parts. I think there's a a heft to the whole thing. I think that there's a sort of atmosphere that um, is thicker sometimes than others. Sometimes we almost lose it, but I think it recovers it again. So I don't really want to judge it against what kind of an epic shenanigans my juvenile 
brain imagined when I first heard about this 12 part <laughs> story because we know that it doesn't quite hold up in in many ways as a narrative but I th I still think that there's a unique pervasive atmosphere that's set off set up very powerfully in those early episodes but it, right, right from episode 1 which is very very unusual that lack of understanding between Brett Vine and Katarina and uh, Stephen unconscious and the doctor wandering off on his own so it's a discomforting feel that never quite goes away for me, even when it's starting to become Planet of the Week later on. The brutality, the um, the, the <laughs> nods at political intrigue. I think the shape of the story as a whole has a sort of weight that, that propels it through to the end. And I don't wish those, those four episodes, which are slightly tonally askew, were gone. I think they would be a, a rather useful breather if we were able to sit down and watch the entire thing. So for me, I still give it five geranium cores out of five. <laughs> I know it's not the myth makers. It's not even the gunfighters as a script. <laughs> but <laughs> this is Doctor Who, isn't it? Yeah, I'm all for it. It's really interesting when you put this side by side with the, the chase, because it's often said that the master plan just borrows from the chase. And the the chase I I I enjoy watching in it in a completely different frame of mind, and you watch Master Plan and there's nothing to be embarrassed about, and it, it it's just a, a beautifully executed piece of serialized television. And I think that if Doctor Who had been a, a an endless running fifty two weeks of just meandering Flash Gordon type space adventure. I'd have been completely fine with that if if Dalek's master plan had just just reeled on and on and on and and just never ended. I think that's perfect. And and the weird thing is that having seen these two orphan episodes five and ten when I was young, there's there's no sense of of uncomfortable disparity between them. Yes, you can analyze them retrospectively and say, well, one's incredibly political and one's slightly. Uh, goofy and obviously they're different time periods and everything but but there's this sort of strong sense of of stylistic continuity between them and and I just love the idea that this is all the same serial and that, that you just could keep careering from one time period to the other and uh, one week could be Egyptians and one week could be space agents and it didn't matter because the Daleks were going to be there just around the corner and um, hmm. I, I, I really love it. I, I think it's got many of the same problems that m much weaker Doctor Who's have, and I think it's got the same problems <laughs> that much uh, more acclaimed Doctor Who stories have. I mean, some people say this is the pinnacle of Doctor Who, but, but in, in terms of structure and story, it, it's massively lacking. I mean, it... It, it needs mm. a huge rewrite if you want this to be a perfect Doctor Who story. I mean, there's there's setup after setup after setup that just go nowhere. I mean, why <laughs> why is the planet abandoned? Why are the delegates locked up? Why is the control? They they say the control room's been left abandoned. That's impossible. They did never left the control room abandoned. There must be a reason for it. There isn't. They just did. And there's just there's all this stuff stacks up, and there's just all these mysteries set up in the final thing. And then you just kind of leave it all behind because episode 12 is just this enormous, intense kind of visceral 
soundscape of 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 event and emotion and consequence and everything suddenly kind of comes to a head and you forget all of the kind of clunky nonsense that's gone before because because it's all just like this horrendous conclusion and the toll of the deaths of the companions all stack up and they just kind of leave with this dust behind them and um yeah after three months everything is yeah gone. it's yeah. just you you kind of forgive the missteps on the way because there's just this kind of sense of relief that everything's just been sort of blown away to dust in a magnificent and epic ending it's numbing isn't it it's a numbing ending. yeah and I don't know where I don't know who created that sound effect. I mean, it may it may well have been Tristan Carey. I couldn't find any detail on it. But that time destructor noise, grinding away mm. and building up. It's um, all of the sound design in the whole story is awesome. There's there's all kinds of effects all through. I assume it's Brian Hodgson. Um, yeah, but may well possibly all be, the way yeah. through. There's there's all kinds of stuff in the swamps and the uh, the spaceship effects, and uh, but yeah, it all culminates with the the time destructor intensity. And there's even that nice little early on when the time destructor's fired up, and it's kind of like a tamer version of the time destructor as it goes wrong. Mm. And it's nice, nice echo foreshadowing of, of a bigger thing to come. Well, I can't beat that, so it doesn't matter what I think. <laughs> <laughs> uh, one to four is perfect Doctor Who the rest the, my takeaway emotion when I'm listening to it is I really want to see what particular bits look like and that happens every single episode on multiple occasions I want to know how they did that and it's a it's such a pity that we don't have these bits because they sound very technically ambitious and I think more so than any other story it's the story that misses the visuals uh, not least because, of course, John Wiles didn't want to pay Mr. Cura for photographs. But yeah, it's a remarkable, it's a remarkable story. It's got its flaws, but it leaves you numb and damaged at the end. And they don't try and kill off another companion for another uh, seventeen years or so. And in this story, they decide to kill off three. I think it's remarkable. I, it's just bold, isn't it? Daring and dangerous. Well, Gav Rymill, what a treat that was. Thank you so much for coming on and for all the prep and research that you put into that. I'm sure the listeners will agree that it was an absolutely fascinating listen. And thanks to Paul, as usual. Next time in part two, we'll be finding out what our listeners said were their most missed missing moments. And of course, we'll be looking at how episodes two, five and ten came back and the prospects of finding any more. Please don't forget to share this if you've enjoyed it. Likes, shares and comments are the only way we know we're being listened to. And finally, thanks for your patience. Sometimes, unfortunately, real life takes over. But we'll be back, albeit slightly more infrequently. And thanks for listening. The strangest thing about Richard Martin's interviews is the sense that he didn't... (laughs) Need some more wine. The strangest thing about Richard Martin's...
I'll just pour the wine first. The strangest thing about Richard... Hang on, I'll put the cat back on first. Mm. The strangest thing about listening to Richard Martin being interviewed 